Good evening, everybody. Good afternoon, buddy. Good afternoon, Scott. It's very afternoon, evening. Even it is very it's afternoon. Evening. It is dark outside. Five p.m. We're getting a little Eastern. bit, uh, a little bit late. Five already for our yeah. podcast. Oh my word! But we are going to soldier on, anyways, because we're here oh, and we're happy. And <laughs> you gonna sing for us, Scott? We said we're gonna soldier on. Yes. Well, go ahead. Um, soldier, soldier on in that wasn't song. That song in that movie. Soldiers. That was the whole song. That was the. That was the. That was oh, the tone. Word. <laughs> Should we start over again? Uh, I think no. we're good. It's good, you know? The camaraderie. The, the bad movies. Yeah, we were talking about some uh, bad Christian movies earlier. But, on topic, we are Thank resuming you. our study of sanctification, and we're also going to talk about the Keswick, not Keswick, Keswick movement. So, let the record show that I know how to pronounce this word properly. Uh, we do need to look at some more passages because we covered most of them, but there were a handful that we didn't cover. And like I said last week, I want to make sure that this podcast is biblically uh, biblically based and um, that our views of sanctification are derived straight from Scripture. So we're going to be in Hebrews for all these verses. We're going to read through four, and then we're going to discuss the issues and review a little bit since Christy and Katie were not here last week. So in Hebrews chapter four, verse 16, and if you hear my baby in the background, Jasher, you know, he's just praising the Lord, but Hebrews four sixteen. I don't think he's praising the Lord, buddy. I think he is. That's what so. I'm going to tell myself. Okay. Um, it says Hebrews four sixteen. let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Something we really talked about a lot last week was grace and sanctification that a lot of people think that, well, Jesus saved you, get to work, but we still need the grace of the Lord as we progress in our relationship with Christ. And so the key words that we're looking for as we go through these Hebrew passages are grace and faith. And so now let's look at Hebrews eleven six. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And so even after getting saved, faith is necessary for us to progress in our walk with Christ. And whenever we speak of faith, we're not speaking of self-effort, self-reliance. Gotcha. Whenever we talk about faith, we're not talking about self-effort or self-reliance. We're talking about depending upon the Lord. And this is grounded as we looked at last week in our position in Christ. Our identity is saved. Our identity is redeemed. We know that we're eternally secure. And this faith that we placed in Christ when we first got saved is to continually be applied to different categories of our lives. You know, whenever we get first get saved... The faith that you give Christ is pretty simple and restricted. The faith is, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. I need eternal life. And so you ask Jesus to save you, believing that he will. You call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. That's where your faith is put. But whenever you continue to walk in faith, I'm going to trust the Lord when it comes to how I raise my kids I'm going to trust the Lord when it comes to how I'm going to, you know, foster a good relationship with my spouse. Like these are the 
different kinds of categories in our lives that we apply faith to, but faith doesn't become self-effort in any of those categories. Uh, I could easily fear that I'm going to do something wrong in raising my kids. But what I ought to do is go to the Lord, seek him with faith and prayer and utterly depend upon his grace to direct me as I parent. And the same could go for any other type of relationship that I have. So a lot of people, they just have this conception in their mind that faith sort of ends there. You know, you have faith, get saved, and mm. then it becomes work, 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 work. But I don't look at raising my kids. I don't look at my relationship with my wife as works based. Yes, works are involved, obviously, uh, you know, raising your kids, having a good relationship with your spouse is going to require doing things, acts of service. But those acts of service stem from a relationship that you have, a loving relationship. And that relationship horizontally is based on your relationship with the Lord. And so if we ever miss that, then it just becomes a bunch of things to do that we are depending upon ourselves to accomplish and we'll experience failure. And so let's move on and look at Hebrews 12, 28. We got a couple more verses here. Hebrews uh, 12, 28. Wherefore... We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So notice here that he's talking to believers. Hebrews chapter six and, and so many other references in this book make it clear that he's writing to people that are already saved. People who have already tasted the goodness of God. They've already partaken of the Holy Spirit. So he's talking to believers, but he says, let us have grace. Now, a lot of people might get confused by that. Wait a second. If they've already been saved and they've already received grace, why would they be encouraged to have grace? Because we need to grace. That's right. Grace towards one another. We need grace in our interactions with people because human relationships, as anybody listening to this will know, are very challenging. But we need grace in every single aspect of our life. And that goes back to the first verse that we read in Hebrews 4. 16 that we approach the throne of grace we continually need to lay hold of grace so that way we can accomplish things in our life and whenever we look at it properly it's not so much what we do like we looked at last week we're just the branches that bear the fruit but the one that really produces the fruit is god he's the vine jesus is the vine and so we're participating in the work that he accomplishes through us and so rather it being something that we do, it's really God doing it through us. MEV and says, let us be gracious. What's that? The MEV says, let us be gracious. Let us be gracious. That's one application. I think that's maybe a little too narrow, but I mean, that's a good translation, you know, when it comes to that particular application. So in um, chapter 13, verse 20, it says, now the peace of God, or sorry, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So working in you, uh, we imagine ourselves as doing the work oftentimes whenever we consider the Christian walk. But here it's God who works in us, the God of peace, Jesus Christ working in us, to do that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And so rather than this being something that we depend on ourselves for, we're depending on Christ for it. And so these are just some verses that uh, we didn't get to last week. And I, I wanted to make sure that we understood um, all of the, the concepts 
behind them. And so the idea is rather than doing things and looking at sanctification that way, we are knowing someone and that someone is Christ. And as we come to know Christ better, as we are more acquainted with him through prayer and approaching him through his word, we appreciate his grace more. We lay hold of that grace more actively on a daily basis. And then good works flow from that. It's about gratitude. And that gratitude is what we should base all of our works on rather than some idea that if we don't perform, we won't be accepted. And that's how a lot of people are. And, and we mentioned last week how there's this bait switch tactic with a lot of preachers that uh, they'll say over here, yes, we believe that, you know, if you're truly saved, you you can't lose your salvation. But then they'll constantly question the salvation of people in the church. And then people yeah. feel the need. Okay, well, I've got to go to this event. I've got to knock on so many doors. I've got to, you know, clean up after church. And these are all good activities, but it becomes keeping the rules. No assurance. Yes, no assurance, keeping the rules. And, and even though, and this is another something, it's a little more nuanced, but even though some people would say, oh, well, no, you, you don't prove your salvation. You don't maintain your salvation. They would still say that our acceptance in the eyes of the Lord, like in terms of rewards, it's all based on things to be done uh, rather than knowing Jesus. And that's also, while it's closer to the truth to say that, you know, you can't lose your salvation and your salvation is eternally secure. Even if you fail, that's closer to the truth. They still put all of it in our hands and say, yes, you can fail. And you will fail if you don't work hard enough. Mm. And that's a mistake as well. But it's really, it's not too far removed from the other kind of mistake that says that salvation is something that is in our hands in one way or another, whether it's tested to see if it's genuine or if it can be lost or maintained, that sort of thing. Um, it, it's still us standing before the Lord and saying, okay, God, I'm giving these things to you. I'm trying to basically make God happy with my performance rather than realizing that you're already fully accepted in Jesus and that he wants you to stop trying to do things for him and let him do things through you. And that's the proper perspective. And it's very easily to get lost in the bad one. Cause his you know? yoke is easy and his burden is light. Absolutely. And, and that's a really good verse because those verses in Matthew, uh, the first verse, when it talks about, you know, coming all, uh, to me who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's talking about coming to Christ and giving your burden to him and getting saved. But then it mm -hmm. switches and it talks about taking on his yoke, but his burden is a light one. Mm -hmm. So whenever we are sanctified, yes, we have things to do. Uh, I mentioned this last week. Uh, the way I phrased it is sanctification involves work, but it's not based on them. So when you get saved, it doesn't have to do with works at all. It's, it's just placing your faith in the promise of the savior. Uh, sanctification does involve works because, you know, loving your, you know, your Christian brethren, um, you know, loving the law, sharing the gospel, these all involve action on your part, uh, which is different than just placing your faith in Jesus and receiving everlasting life. Uh, but still is the emphasis on, you know, okay, God's putting this weight on me and I've got to develop strength to bear it every day. And it's like, you just grit your teeth and you, you know, it's like, okay, let's hit the weights. Let's do the hard work and let's, let's do better. Okay. Is it about that or is it about, okay, I can't do anything. I'm nothing. And I need Jesus today. 
And the first thing that I need to do is realize that I have nothing to bring to him. Uh, that I couldn't save myself in the first place. And I can't do the Christian life by myself. I still have the flesh. I'm realistic about this struggle. If it was a matter of getting saved and the flesh is completely eradicated, then yes, you could do it. Yes, if you have this new nature in Christ and you have no flesh to struggle with, you have no enemy prowling about in the world, then yes, okay? It would be pretty simple for you to live that Christian life, okay? The millennial kingdom. What's that? The millennial kingdom. That's right. I mean, if, you, if you're a believer who's got a glorified body, there's not going to be any struggle at all, okay? You've overcome everything. However, before we reach that point, we are struggling with the flesh on a daily basis. And if you go into the Christian life thinking that you've got that handled, then you're sorely mistaken. And a lot of this is based on bad theology. Uh, you're going to see here in a minute when we talk more about the Keswick movement that reformed people don't really like it. And uh, the reform movement is full of people who would not really like uh, talking about a sin nature as something the Christians still have. Uh, there are two different views uh, one is the dual nature view and people nitpick about the word nature and different terminology. We're not doing that, but there's basically two views. One's the dual nature view that a Christian has a new nature in Christ and they have the old nature still. Uh, we're not bound to it, meaning we're saved. And uh, whenever we die, we're leaving that behind and, you know, we're going to be with the Lord, but we're still struggling with it in the here and the now until we die or Jesus comes back. The other view is it to me i don't know how people can hold it uh, it's possible that maybe i'm misunderstanding it but they basically say that no you don't really have a sin nature anymore now that you've been saved i've heard people say this uh, I've, I've talked with a pastor on one occasion who said no once you get saved okay imagine you're like a pig okay mm -hmm. and when you get saved you go from being a pig to a sheep Okay, sheeps don't have the same habits and tendencies and desires that pigs do. And so it's inconceivable that once you've gone from a pig to a sheep, you're not going back to the pig pen. And I said, well, that, that sounds well and good. I said, but the problem is we still have the flesh. They and say it, that you're, you've killed the flesh and that it's like you just have to focus on that and then you can be sinless perfection if you just keep focusing on the flesh is dead. Well, the, see, there are, there are some people who hold to sinless perfection. These people are generally not reformed. They're Wesleyan. And they right. would say, yes, you do have the flesh and you have to rule over it. And if you do so, then you can attain sinless perfection. They'll call that entire sanctification. And they usually believe that a second blessing of the Holy Spirit is needed to accomplish it. Um, but the reform camp... They would say that if you are really saved, then you've got only one nature now, and that is a Christ nature that he's put in you. You're born again, and a true Christian will consistently live according to that nature. Which kills all of And I don't sick. know how they would say, like how they would explain why Christians continue to sin, uh, but they seem to emphasize more that we've just got one nature now, or this old self is dead and, and useless and, and, and is just gone in the past. And now we're new in Christ. And if you're really new in Christ, then you're going to act that way. And then you have other people over here who I believe are taking the biblical data and they're more um, realistically, honestly interpreting it. They'll say, no, you still have the flesh. I mean, and Paul talks about mortifying the flesh, putting it to right. death. 
uh, taking up your cross daily is what the Lord said. So the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I want to do, I right. try. They teach it as that's past tense, and then when he says, "Oh, wretched man that I am," you know, but thanks be to God that that's the point of salvation. yes. And, and you're right. Reform people would generally take it that way. That's wrong. But even if we set aside that debate about Romans seven, they would still, I think, have a significant problem with Paul talking to Christians that he's called saints. And saying to rule over the flesh and to put it to death and to to put on the new man, that implies a consistent uh, vigilance on our part that we need to maintain in order to not be like the world and to be like Christ. Mm. And so that does say that there's something about us that we may not be in the world, but there's a part of the world still in us. Mm -hmm. And that part of the world that's in us is the sin nature. It's not our identity anymore. Okay. It's like it's a foreign almost like something cancerous. Okay. It's not us, but it's still there. Yes. Mm. It's, it's still, well, I would say that the burden of knowing that, uh, we are lost is removed obviously at the cross, but the burden of, um, the struggle against sin. Yes. The struggle against sin is an ongoing one. And so how do you overcome in that struggle against sin? Well, you certainly don't do any good by saying, well, if you fail to overcome, you're going to lose it. That's not going to work. You're not going to overcome it by saying, oh, well, true believers automatically overcome it. Mm. That's not because then you're going to question, am I a true believer all the time? And you're going to be incapacitated spiritually. So the, again, the answer to the question is we go back to if we fail, we're still his and that's freeing. But that doesn't mean that we stay right there and say, okay, well, my salvation is no longer in question. So there's nothing else to do. There are other things to do. And it's, it's constant acts of faith in our life. It's like now that I'm saved, okay, well, he left me down here for a reason. Okay. He's got something for me to do. If I fail in that, Mm. I'm still saved. And that frees me up. I don't have the fear anymore of standing before the Lord and being rejected. Praise God for that. Thank you for your amazing grace. Okay, but how do I apply that faith? Well, you get to know the Lord, not just knowing his rules, get to know him. Like what, what does he want you to do? Because you love him, you treasure him, you want to please him. So you go to his word and he says, okay, you know, to be like me, okay, these are things that you need to do in your life. And automatically uh, what comes to mind is the simplicity of what Jesus tells us to do, really. I mean, you can read, the new Testament your whole life and you can come away and it's remarkably easy to remember salvation is simple and sanctification is simple too, in the sense that it's just loving God and loving people. Mm -hmm. That's really it. I mean, now of course how it fleshes out in different situations, you know, that requires wisdom, the wisdom that the Bible provides. But, uh, as we go to God and as we seek that wisdom, he's going to show us what's that. And you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's right. And uh, that's not a mystical experience. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, That is um, uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at how that compares to these other concepts like sealing and baptism of the Spirit. But you're right. You have to be sensitive to the Spirit. How do you grow in your relationship with the Holy Spirit? That's another big question. Um, How can you be sensitive to His voice in your life? And so this all comes back to a relationship it's not mechanical um it, it's not some it's not something supplemental okay like you know you, you add on these different things and if i have the right configuration of 
of works in my life, then I am sanctified and I'm spiritual. Um, it, it's a matter of just letting God work through you. So anyways, we'll look some more at that in a minute. But um, one question that comes to mind, and I know some people are listening, they may have had this question too. Um, if I've explained myself well and you've understood what I've said, I believe in eternal security. And that means that justification, while it is free, um, and salvation is not something we can earn, there is a possibility of one failing in sanctification, being stunted in their growth, and uh, even going back to sinful habits. Uh, carnal Christianity is a real thing, and there are Reformed people who don't really like that concept. In fact, if you type carnal Christianity online and you, know, you look up a message by John Piper about it, John mm -hmm. MacArthur about it, uh, they try to make carnal Christians everything really but carnal Christians. <laughs> um, so they'll say, oh, well, maybe they're just immature Christians. But the idea of a Christian going back to sin in a consistent pattern in their life, like picking up those habits again, uh, they deny that. They'll say that the true Christian can't do that. Um, I think they're wrong. I think Paul warns against it. Peter warns against it. John warns against it. They all warn against it. So it's a real possibility. I mean, we're told that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Absolutely. So we are really good at de deceiving ourselves. So how could a believer, it would be very easy to just ignore the spirit. It would be. Yeah. And of course, the only way that one could refute that idea is if you hold a theology, which says, well, that that sin, that sin nature has been put to death. And if you're saved, then you got the regenerate new nature from Christ. And, if you got that regenerate new nature, then you're going to, you're going to live according to it, you know, but here's the problem. It's a battle every day. Um, yes, we, it's realistically, it's a battle every day if you're not self-deceived. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but even those small sins, like no reformed person would say that a Christian never sins. They would freely admit that. Well, here there's, that just blows your whole theory right. out of the water. I mean, if you've sinned even once, okay, even once. That would be contrary to your new nature because your new nature is absolutely perfect. That's true. The Bible says mm. we're washed clean. So there's got to be something in you. There's got to be something in you that leads you to be um, tempted of this sin and to get a foothold in your life, even if it may seem like a small one. Okay. Right. Lying about something may not be like a practice, but you just, you, you fail. Maybe it's a one-time thing, but if you're, regenerate and you only got that one nature then why'd you just fall into that sin right there should be no room for that in your life now i and mean let's there's talk about pride yeah absolutely and that's one sin they've committed if they think that they can't stumble and sin and fail and so um but we do know that as we've stated repeatedly we can fail and so how much can we fail this is honestly one of those questions that i'm kind of reluctant to talk about because it's speculative but I do want to mention it because it's coming, come in my mind. Um, whenever reading about this, um, can a Christian lose faith? How far can a Christian go? Well, let's put it this way. Okay. We know that even unbelievers, okay, let's take an atheist like Richard Dawkins. Okay. Really hardened atheist. According to the Bible, does Richard Dawkins know deep down that he's wrong? Yes. 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 So that means that even an unbeliever who's deluded himself deep down is aware that God exists, but they have to keep it down by what? Suppressing it. Okay. Mm -hmm, right. And so that means that let's say a carnal Christian 
um, has gone so far away from God in their life. They've grieved the Holy Spirit. And grieving the Holy Spirit is something we can do. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4.30. He says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, um, whereby you have been sealed unto the day of redemption. So even in the very verse right there, he's saying you can grieve the Holy Spirit, but while you're sealed, but while you're sealed, that's right. And so um, if someone was to grieve the Holy Spirit, suppress the Holy Spirit, uh, sort of like an atheist suppressing their knowledge of God that they have simply because they're a created being, uh, how far can they go away from God? Well, we have cases nowadays, they're popping up more and more commonly, and it's alarming, uh, heartbreaking. But there are all these stories that I'm seeing online of people who have, you know, they've been raised in church. They were in youth group. They made professions of faith. Um, they see, yes, they seem very genuine people who knew them. They swear that they were genuine themselves. And then they go to college and it's like they're in the lion's den mm-hmm. right. and they're devoured by their atheistic philosophy and their minds are poison, like you said. And so. So many people that I see on Facebook that go and they get in these chat forums and they say, my son has wandered away from the faith. What do I do? It's like, I know as soon as I look at the comments, what I'm going to find. There's not, there's not a single person ever except me that says this person, if they really believed are still a believer. And what you need to do is appeal to that. They have the Holy Spirit, okay? Have conversations with them. Tell them Jesus loves them, okay? Tell them that he hasn't left them. And don't assume that this person was never saved in the first place when you have no biblical warrant for doing so. And so some people would say, well, do you have any proof that someone can lose their faith? Well, in 2 Timothy 2, it talks about Hymenaeus uh, and Alexander uh, it teaches uh, or shows in scripture that they were teaching false doctrine about the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And uh, Paul had exercised church discipline on them by handing them over to Satan. A lot of people take that to mean like, you know what? He you know, handed them over to be condemned eternally. No, they were in the church. And just like the man who had sinned with they were his put out into the world. Yes, he was put out in the world in a first Corinthians five, five, he was put out, but it says it was for his, his flesh to be destroyed so that his spirit might be saved. So this is talking about a believer Um, and any destruction that would be experienced in his life would be limited to the fleshly realm rather than his spirit, which has already been eternally saved. Right. So Hymenaeus and Alexander were examples of people who started out good, but they bought into false doctrine. I don't know where that started, but they ended up buying into false doctrine. And it said that through their teaching, they overthrew the faith of some. Paul says that some of these people that have been listening to them had the right faith, they had the right doctrine, their faith was overthrown. And in 2 Timothy 2.13, which we'll look at more today because it pertains to the story of Hudson Taylor, uh, 2 Timothy 2.13 clearly indicates that if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. Right. We there is referring to believers. Right. And so, and the context shows that. So what that would mean is if you lose your faith, however far that goes. Okay. Cause people can have doubts and people can push them aside. I've had them myself. Uh, people can have doubts and they can let them get a foothold in their life. And then it can eventually reap destruction where you have people who are walking away from church. But those people I'm convinced because 
they've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, if indeed they have, they will never be able to completely shut out and deny the Holy Spirit. I don't think that they can. I think that they, in the presence of a believer who's talking about Jesus, uh, deep, deep down where they have pushed the Holy Spirit and grieved him, he's there and he makes his presence known. They can keep him down. They can uh, suppress him and they can uh, ignore his presence. But um, they still know deep down, even if they may have professed to have rejected him. And I think that you can delude yourself, too. I really think that, you know, psychologically speaking, someone can go throughout their life and in their conscience thought, in their conscience thinking, they can have pushed God completely out. But in their subconscious thought, and this is something I'm not getting into too much because I'm not a psychologist, but I do believe that deep down someone can have a awareness of truth. And I believe that even these believers who have walked away from the faith, they still have the Holy Spirit and they can't escape him. He's not going to let him go. But Christy, you were going to say something. So I'm, I'm questioning whether or not I should say it and whether or not Scott would want to cut it out of the podcast. No, then don't say it. <laughs> I was just thinking about extreme cases when people might like, might have had a background of possibly making a profession of faith and then go off the deep end and do like some horrible evil. Yeah. And, and that's ultimately something that I just give to God. Um, hypothetically and hypotheticals are always untrustworthy because we just don't know. God knows, you Mm -hmm. know, hypothetically, if they've been saved, they're saved, but that's the big question that we ask, right? Have they been, but we know from the old Testament, we know from the old Testament that some people did some pretty horrible things um, we know Solomon was an idolater and no doubt the women that he was married to practiced terrible things, um, and worship to their gods. I'm pretty sure. I don't know the verse reference, forgive me, but pretty sure that some of his wives worship Molech and Molech mm-hmm. was, you know, a God that they gave their children to. I don't know if Solomon participated in that or if he sat by and he let it happen, didn't do anything about it. But I do know that he committed idolatry. And no one seems in Christianity to question his salvation. Um, He seems to be a believer. And we have people like Saul. Saul, I think there's good reason to believe that Saul was a believer. And he slaughtered the priests Mm. at Nob and, um, you know, pursued David. And so. So there's always the mental illness aspect. Yeah. And so I don't, that's something that I, it bothers me a little bit because um, I think that. I think that in in the main, it's a principle that people, even apart from being saved, are not willing to do certain things. And that's why when people do them, let's say serial killers, why are serial killers so fascinating? It's because they're very aberrant, like they're not normal, like Mm -hmm. this doesn't happen normally. People normally don't go to those links. So when people ask me, well, would a believer be a serial killer? If you believe in eternal security, would they go that far? I'm like, well, normal people don't even go that right. far. Normal, unregenerate, lost people generally don't. So, yes, it would be so much harder for a Christian who has the Holy Spirit to go to those lengths. Um, has it ever happened in history? Like I said, if Saul was a believer, then he did it. He slaughtered the priest. He did it in anger. He, he did it to get at David. But um, he murdered all those people. And so I I don't know. Like, I I just try in situations where someone had a profession. um, I try to just say, well, if they really made a genuine profession, then 
something went wrong down the road big time. And it usually doesn't happen overnight. It's not like someone makes a profession on a Friday and then Saturday, they're murdering people. If that was the case, mm-hmm. then I would genuinely doubt that person's right. profession. Right. I mean, that goes without saying, I think, but if someone made a profession and then years later, I mean, they start going down a dark path of drugs and addiction, and then they end up cracking psychologically and yeah. they do things that are just, you can't even wrap your mind around. Well, it was a downward slope. It wasn't something that happened quickly. And that person took steps further away from God. It wasn't, it wasn't some fade. Yes, it was a slow fade. So I think that if someone does get so far to where they even reject the faith, like these people who say, like, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. That didn't happen overnight either. Like these were people that had a struggle that was going on for years. They may not have talked about it with anybody. They may have kept it to themselves. A lot of them have. But uh, they were going through this struggle and they'll admit it too. a lot of them. They'll say, well, I was having these doubts for years mm-hmm. and they never addressed them. They, they never really came face to face with them. And so, again, there was that downward journey away from the Holy Spirit in their life. And so I don't know how far. Practically speaking, a true believer, a true safe person can go. But I do know one thing that often what people imagine about salvation is this. You get saved, but what God really did is just gave you a dose of salvation. And you've got to prove that you deserve that dose by giving God something back. Okay, so let me let me explain what I'm trying to say here. A lot of people imagine salvation as making up for the things that you've done and they may not say that okay but that's really what they mean because if you ask someone who says like i don't believe that a true christian can sin a uh you know sin in a, in a lifestyle manner like they just you know go back to the same sins and let's not think of anything like really drastic let's say you know someone was you know now they're smoking pot and sleeping with their boyfriend. okay what a, yes okay fine all right yes They were doing that before and they went back to it. Some people would say, well, I just don't think that's right. Okay. Well, some people at first would say, well, I don't think a true believer would do it, but are they really saying that? Or are they saying, I just don't think that that is fair. Like it doesn't Mm. sound fair to me that this person could be saved for free and then just throw it back in Jesus's face. Yeah. But what is that called biblically? It's called grace Mm. undeserved. So what, what they start to do is become legalistic and they'll measure stuff because if you ask them, have you ever thrown it back in Jesus's face? Like, are you saved? Have you ever sinned against him after being saved? Well, yeah, but I've never done that. Okay. Well now we're starting to measure. Yeah. Okay. But if we're talking about salvation, it's an absolute thing because even one sin would send us forever to hell. That's right. Mm-hmm. So you see what I'm saying? Like, so what they start doing is picking and choosing sins and then they become the legalist. So while on the surface, when you first start having this conversation, they might be like, let's say Lordship reform guy right. and say, well, a true Christian wouldn't do those things. Okay. Well, that kind of sounds a little bit more compatible with the Bible. It's mm. closer. Right. But if you keep pressing them on it, it's, it's all, almost like they're no different from a Catholic because they would say, well, there are just some sins that you can't do because you know, it just ain't fair. It isn't right that a person could be saved and yet commit these sins. Mm. And so then it becomes a matter of merit, a matter of us not going that far, which conversely would be us living better than these people. And if you start saying, I live better than these people, and that's why I think 
that I'm saved, then it's meritorious and you've rejected grace. So grace, yeah, grace is risky because it opens up the door to the possibility of abuse. And that's why Paul and Galatians said, you know, this liberty that you've received, you know, like don't abuse it. Right. But that means that it could be abused. Right. And so it all comes back to this justice. What is justice? Is it us giving to God works? Is it us being punished for sins we've done? Or is justice what happened on the cross 2000 years ago? If without the cross, justice is we deserve everything that we get. I mean, literally, when, when Jesus came back from the dead three days later, it was openly proclaimed that the father had said about every sin. I'm talking everyone. He had said, I'm satisfied. Do we actually believe that? Yeah. Do we actually believe that Jesus was, com- that God the Father was completely satisfied? Now, if he was completely satisfied and he says, I will give you the full benefits of this through one act of faith, John three sixteen, mm-hmm. then that means after having that faith, practically speaking, whether or not somebody will be willing to do something, that's again, hypothetical speculative. But if they did, let's just say if they did. Mm. Jesus has already satisfied the father. That's right. He's already done it. So again, when I've had conversations with my cousin about this, with friends about this, and it all comes down to merit. Mm. Did Jesus or did he not on the cross completely satisfy God's justice? And if he did, then there's nothing I can do to undo what Jesus has done because he said it was a free gift. There's nothing I can do because justice has been satisfied. And so now the only way you could avoid this conclusion is if the condition that is expected of us biblically is more than just faith. And that's usually what they'll do. They'll try to wheedle in their faith and works. Faith, real faith has all these works. And what they're doing is in a sophisticated, deceptive way is taking all of this stuff and loading it into the word faith. But when they do that, they're ultimately denying that what Jesus did was sufficient. Really? They are because Jesus, when he died for us and he, you know, sent the Holy spirit and he inspired the apostles to tell us all this stuff, he could have said, okay, guys, yeah, the father's completely satisfied, but he has the right to set the conditions and the conditions he sets are as follows faith, baptism, church attendance, Bible reading, prayer. He could have done that. Mm -hmm. And if he would have done that, well, he has every right to do it. He's sovereign, right? Okay. I better get to work, (laughs) but he didn't set that as the condition. And so anyways, a friend of mine posted and she, she did all the verses about such were such some of you, you know, those she says, I wonder how many Christians really believe this. We give lip service to the idea that anyone in Christ is a new creation, but do we actually believe that? Do we really believe that God can take those who serve the lust of the flesh and doctrines of demons and wash them by his spirit, making them new that murderers can become former murderers cough, Paul cough, that sexual deviants can become former sexual deviants, that former idolaters can become, or that, that I, for, idolaters can become former idolaters, or do we really in practice believe redemption only works on little sins like gossip mm-hmm. and envy? That's right. It's good. That's but it, let's, let's take that even further. So let's say the person you say the murderer, okay? Talking to somebody on death row, okay? Would you, for, for a person who says they really believe that, okay? Let's question that for a second. Let's challenge that. So if they were to talk to this person on death row and say, look, I know you've committed all these murders. Okay. But all you have to do to be forgiven is to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Do they actually believe that? 
Now, let's say they call upon the name of the Lord and they get saved. Amen. Okay. And let's say this is, again, just hypothetical. It's an illustration, so I can do with it what I want. Okay. So let's say this person is set free. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're out of prison now. Let's say they start out good. They got saved. I think that there will be change in the life of a true Christian. I don't deny that, guys. Okay, I do believe there will be true change. Okay, because there's this enthusiasm that the Lord has just redeemed you and that mm -hmm. excites you and it empowers you. And Absolutely. it's it's a question of keeping that at the forefront of our mind. We lose it. We forget. People forget all the time. I mean, we feel so thankful for things people done in the past, but then years down the road, we treat them like they're mm -hmm. trash. But we forget how thankful we were years ago, right? So people can do that. So you start out good, you're enthusiastic. Maybe the guy goes to church, he starts turning his life around. But then let's say what got him started, what what uh, made him so violent, perhaps, was um, alcohol or drugs. Okay, again, it's just an illustration. And this person goes back to the alcohol and goes back to the drugs. And then they wind up taking somebody else's life and they get put back in prison. Okay. If you were to sit down that evangelist who led them to faith that first time and ask them, was that person really saved? That, how they answer that question is really going to determine what they believe about grace, right. whether or not it's free. Now, if that person said, yeah, I believe it. I believe that person was really saved. Or if the person says, no, I don't think they really, they really got it. Right. No matter how they try to, no matter how they try to redefine faith and, and you know, twist the terms and re and again, redefine all the 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 language of scripture um, it ultimately comes down to i think those people would say they just didn't deserve it like they had dishonored christ so much and they had spit in his face too much and it just it what is you can't do that why because it's just not right but again the term right has to do with justice and on the cross wasn't justice satisfied so mm -hmm. I, I'm we're here leaving out the whole thing that nobody knows if another person's saying that's right that's right and nobody does nobody does um so the reason that I, I say all this, guys, is because I, I personally love Jesus. I want to serve him. I cannot imagine, okay, doing these things. Mm. And um, it, it makes me more angry than, well, I know y'all realize it. Y'all understand the same anger. You know, this, it, I think it's a righteous indignation that we have from right. the Holy Spirit. When we see these crimes committed. Injustice. Uh, when we see the injustice committed, we, we get a little bit of... Um, what was that about? You and injustice. You mean like I was laying awake at night and I actually had to take anxiety medicine because I was ruminating on all of the injustice in the world? Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. and I mean, yes. and so I get that. I, I understand that. It's so you, because you're a child of God, it's almost like he gives you a little bit of his perspective on how bad sin really is. Like before you were just completely oblivious to how bad sin was. Now you can see, okay, now I see why hell is a place. You can see that, right? So, and once you really see it, you can't unsee it. That's right. And so it's, it's a sensitivity we have because we're born again. Um, but we got to remember that no one is more angry about sin than God. And this little dose of righteous indignation that we got through the Holy spirit is nothing compared the to dregs. his. Yeah. And he said to the son, I'm satisfied with what you did on behalf of everybody. Everybody's welcome. I can literally forgive every single sin and let anybody in who, who wants to come in because Jesus has made up for all the crimes of humanity. Right. 
And so that's why I will maintain grace to the day I die. Yes, I'm going to have people, if I'm vocal about it, they're going to say, well, what about this sin? And what about that sin? And what about this person doing that? Do you think they're eternally secure? Yes. I'm going to say it's between them and God. But yeah, if they yeah. really believe, then yes, they're yes. saved. And when they stand before God, I, I'm glad I'm not going to be them, right? That's right. why I'm trying to live a life for the Lord. I don't want to stand before the Lord in that mm. kind of shame. And some people might say, oh, well, that's just not enough. And they speak about it. It's like, oh, that person can only deserve hell. You know, we all like, deserve hell. It's like, but, <laughs> you know, I, I just, I can't, I can't get behind people thinking that way. Um, mm. If that, that would make me question their salvation. Yeah. It's, it's just because, because you, you're, that's not loving. That's not being Christ-like. Yeah, absolutely. And right? I know, and I know, look, when people stand before the Lord, mm. uh, carnal Christians, there will be a judgment. I don't know what all this will entail this shame i can't imagine it Man. it's not eternal okay because salvation's free but i'm saying that imagine a person who let's say they do throw away their faith yeah and they do go back to that carnal lifestyle if they're really saved even though it may only last for moments i don't want those moments yeah to be experienced by me yeah and that's what i told somebody the other day about it. i was talking to him online and she's like well that just seems so small you just some shame before God's judgment seat. And I'm like, we're talking about God's judgment seat. Well, and eternal rewards, loss of eternal rewards. That's right. That's this, forever. The kind of shame that someone can experience before the judgment seat, we downplay it way too much. Yeah. Um, and that's another topic for another day. But there are consequences. And that brings us into this next question, okay, that I want to answer. And then we'll wrap it up. There's a lot of things we didn't cover tonight. And that's okay, because I don't want to rush it. You know, I recognize as I teach this stuff that, you know, things are going to come up and I like I like the rabbit trails because I discover things on the rabbit trails that I initially didn't think about. Right. That we always take buddy on. Sorry, yeah, but it's good. happens when I'm That's here. A, no, but it's good. I like no, it. You do. You do it, too. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So anyways, uh, let's talk about rabbit trails. Let's talk about the fear of the Lord a little bit, because we just brought up the Bema seat. We brought up the judgment seat of Christ. And this is something that a lot of people misunderstand because they haven't rightly divided the word of God. But in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Paul says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are manifest unto God, and I trust also are manifest in your consciousness. He says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, in verse 10, it says, for we, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. He's talking about himself too. And then in verse 11, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. What he's saying is he is going to have to stand before the judgment seat too. And give an account for And give an word. account. And so knowing the type of fear that comes with that knowledge, he says, we eagerly persuade men every day. Now, Paul is not having here, you know, a moment of doubt concerning his salvation. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to be rejected. He's already written a whole letter, Galatians, about justification by faith, by faith alone, through grace alone. And so he's not talking about the terror of hell. He's talking about the terror of standing before the Lord and experience shame. So we have to be careful about this fear because sometimes people will take it so far to where either a their assurance of salvation is wrecked 
Okay, they have so much fear standing before the Lord that they wonder, am I even saved? But if you're at that judgment, you're already in. That's right. That's right. That's true. But then there's the other alternative, the other thing that can happen, and that is it can lead to self-reliance to where I better start working hard because I'm going to have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account. Now, while I can I can get on board with that sentiment initially, what that can lead to is legalism. Mm -hmm. It can easily lead to legalism because what you're doing now is you're living your Christian life not out of a love for the Lord, for what he's done, but you're living because you're going to stand before the Lord in that one moment and you're afraid of experiencing shame. Even if it may not be eternal, you're afraid of experiencing that. But now, you're the, you're, then you're really risking everything being burned because your foundation is wrong. Right. You're not doing it, it for the Lord. You're doing it to justify yourself. Yes, right. yes. So I think that we have to be careful that we don't take this overboard, but we don't reject it either. It's a, it's a balance, honestly, whenever we're understanding uh, principles like this when it comes to grace and fear. Yes, there is a place for fear in the Christian life. All right, so I don't deny that. And I have it too. And I know y'all do too. Scott, you just said it yourself. Like, I have some res reservation about standing before the Lord. Okay, we but... Because he but, knows it all. Every thought, every... I mean, like... He knows no everything. No matter how good you look on the outside... You still got the ugly things that pop up in your head and that you do and that you say and mm -hmm. and the things you did long ago, you still, I mean, absolutely. You know, but, I'm not proud of all of those things. But where does right. that lead you? That that fear, it reveals itself to be the good kind or the bad kind, depending on where you go next. If where you go next is, but I thank Jesus for saving me. Amen. Absolutely. And I know that when I stand before him, I'm not going to hell. Right. And that any loss that's experienced, the foundation stays firm. Mm -hmm. And that this person judging me is not the king of kings only. He's my father. Right. right. And I have a relationship with him. And there's love there. There's love. And so while it could be so much worse, it's yeah. not because of grace. And if that's where you end up, when you mm -hmm. have that fear, that's exactly what God wanted to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He, it's the, the proper outcome of fear is leading you back to grace. Even, Not, I've got to do more. I've got to do more. I've got to do more. Absolutely. That's the wrong route to take. Yeah. And it's so easy to do that. Um, it's also easy to think about discipline in this life. Like there have been times where God's disciplined me. Um, there are times where, you know, in other people's lives, you don't know if that's God's discipline or not, right? And it's not my job to judge, okay? That could be a Job. They're not being disciplined. This could be something else entirely. Spiritual warfare, who knows? But there are times in my life where I've keenly felt that this is discipline. There are mm -hmm. other times where I was like, this is not discipline. This is just the world, and I'm struggling in it. And I could feel like Job and say, I know that I'm. there's no sin in my life right now that I'm hiding, and this is why I'm being punished. The other times where I've like, this is God's discipline. And what it did is it drove me back to God. So that way I confess that sin and I'd repent of it. And I'd start living for the Lord. And it actually made me more thankful, not more afraid, more thankful. The experience of chastisement or the experience of fear, you know, what chastisement might be in store for me if I don't turn from my sin. What it actually did is it brought me back to the knowledge that, wow, I could be experiencing hell, but I'm not because of what God has done. Think about it this way. Like whenever you experience God's chastisement, understand that it's the same God who has the ability to throw the body and soul in hell. Just think about that. I mean, he's, he, he mm. is the same God who has the ability to do that. But he's but, chastising you as his child. That's right. 
So the punishment that I'm experiencing, it wouldn't be as uh, easy, as light as it is if it wasn't for the fact that I was saved. And he's my father, like you said, Christy. So I can go to my father and I can say, appealing to that relationship because of what Christ has done in my life, I'm assured that his grace is sufficient for me, not just at the initial moment of justification, but it's sufficient for me right now. And so even chastisement, even the thought of the Bema seat, the, you know, judgment seat of Christ, it brings me right back to thankfulness for the Lord. And I think that that's something that maybe some people find controversial, but I think that it's not a bad thing for Christians to consider what might have been. You know, I think it's a good thing. I think back to the time when I was six years old, what if I wasn't raised in a Christian home? And what if I didn't go to church? And uh, what if I didn't hear the gospel when I was six years old and um, I lived my life in sin? And not only would I be missing out on the goodness of God and things would have been so different, I wouldn't have my wonderful wife and my children and all that, but um, I would be ignorant of his grace and I would be separated him from all eternity if I, if I hadn't received that gift of salvation. And so when I think about that, I'm like, I don't like to go there. Honestly, I don't like to think about it, but I feel like at, at a couple of times in my life, God has actually said, buddy, remember who you are and remember who I am. Remember what I could have been to mm. you, or rather remember what I was to you. Cause mm. there was a time in my life where God was not my father. It's called adoption for a reason. Mm -hmm. You know, you're born into the family of God. And so when that thought comes into my mind and then I hear the blessed word, but mm. you've been redeemed, but you're my child. It's like that fear, whether it be of chastisement, that, that thought of hell, even it drives me back to the father's love. And it's like, I just want to shelter in his arms and it fills me with, not terror, but it fills me with comfort. And so I hope that makes sense, but there is an unhealthy fear of the Lord. Um, and that's not the biblical kind fearing you lost your salvation, fearing that you're not really saved. Those are unhealthy fears and they have no place in the Christian life. But, uh, having that fear that, I mean, y'all probably had times in your life where you realize, man, I could have just died. Mm. Uh, <laughs> I've had that fear for other people. My brother one time flipped a four-wheeler and I thought, oh my gosh, he's he's dead. And it rolled over the top of him. And he was fine. He just topped back up and he got back on the four-wheeler. <laughs> we were talking about that time when I had the girls and I was coming, when COVID hit and I was coming back from California and I started driving the rental car up over the coastal range because where I was flying out of. And I'm just driving along and there's a car in front of me and it's probably two car lengths in front of me. And all of a sudden this car from the opposite direction comes across two lanes, across the median and cuts between me and the car in front of me and hit the curb. Mm. And if I'd have been a split second before where I was, we'd have all been dead. Gosh, there've been moments like that too in my life, like especially in the car, there've been moments where we, the other day, this was like a couple months ago. We remember telling you all about it. Here, we were right? on our way here and we almost plowed into somebody. Mm. I mean, I was going down the highway 70 miles per hour. And they pulled okay? out in front of you, right? And they pulled right out in front of me and just were rolling across the highway. And we, and if there would have been somebody, all I could think to do, I didn't have time to look at my blind spot. It was so quick. I had to jerk to the right. If there would have been somebody going, you know, in the right lane next to me, right there, parallel to us, we would have run into them. It would have been, it would have been disastrous. And I mean, Jamie, he's right there on the right side of the car. 
you know, he would have taken the brunt of that accident. Mm. I mean, and afterwards I was just like, thank you, God. But doesn't it, it put a little fear in you? Even, even once you get past it, even once you realize like I am no longer in harm's way, just the thought of what could have just happened. Okay. Mm -hmm. It makes your heart. Yeah. Your heart is racing. Yeah, Adrenaline it, it, is all through your whole body. So, you know, it's one of those things where there have been times in my life where whenever a preacher's preacher, I'm reading the Bible and it's like, wow, I lived my life and there are other people living their lives today who have this thin sheet underneath them. And that's all that separates them from hell. And they have no idea. They're mm -hmm. completely ignorant of it. And that's our job to, sh to share with them that news. And it's a bad news that leads to the good news. Right. But that was me at one time. Like that could have been me. And, and when you read Luke 16, the story of rich man and Lazarus, like that rich man could have been mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. That, that gets your heart, you know, uh, acting up just like after you just narrowly miss a car accident. And to me, as a believer, what is the first thing that comes into my mouth when I narrowly escape something like that? Praise mm. Lord. Thank the Lord. Praise the Lord. And that is the healthy kind of fear. Um, it fills our hearts with the joy of our salvation. And um, it is really hard in moments like that to take for granted the love of God. Even when we do take for granted the love mm. of God. Okay. Whenever we go throughout life and, you know, we just kind of get distracted and we're not thinking about heaven and hell and salvation and our, our eternal destiny, our, our own eternal destiny and those of others. Um, we start living like residents instead of refugees that are just that's passing right. through. Exactly. And that's when that opens the door to carnal living. Okay. We're sleeping. We're not awake. Uh, if we're sleeping in the Lord, okay, we're still saved, but it, it just, you know, I don't want to tempt God. I don't want to tempt God. I don't want to frustrate <laughs> his grace. As Paul said, I know that he's going to hold on to me no matter what, because God keeps his promises. But given what he saved me from, when I really think about it, I want to do nothing more than just live for him and please him because I've been saved. And, and that's one of the hardest things I think for unbelievers to, to overcome and get over is the idea of hell. I think it's the biggest thing for them. I don't think it's just fear. It's part of it. It's also pride. Well, they have a hard it, time understanding. They, they blame it on God. Yes, exactly. God, how can God send people to hell? Well, you're sending yourself to hell. God provided you a way out and you're choosing not to accept it. Exactly. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when they actually first fear it because they admit it, they admit, I actually deserve this. Whoa. Like, this is a real thing. And I could go there. And when that thought pops into their mind, the next natural step is, you know, Lord, save me. But um, we as Christians, we need to, like I said, go back to that. But um, anyways, I don't know where I was going with that train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> so that happens sometimes. But anyways, uh, that's probably a good place to stop. Uh, we will next week go ahead and tell you. Uh, we will eventually. Y'all are like, y'all haven't talked about the Keswick movement at all. The movement. We're going to talk Even about the Keswick movement, the I promise. The, I actually, podcast. it's on the podcast, but we haven't talked about we're gonna it We're going to get to it, I promise, guys. Yeah. Maybe you need um, to give it a different title. It's like two hours. Well, I mean, it's part of the same category. Um, practical <laughs> sanctification and Keswick movement. We're going to talk about it. Next <sighs> week, we are going to talk about, since we talked about um, the fear of the Lord, 
We're going to talk about the filling of the spirit, and then we're going to talk about the Keswick movement right after. Sound good? Okay. All right. See ya. See ya.